Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. I do think that, Matt, you're selling yourself a little short because I think you were actually the first person who I saw making it clear that, like, we should be so lucky to have demand outstrip supply for these. Let's make sure that the supply is on lock and then we can figure, you know, and and that the demand is high enough and then we can figure out how to match those two. I was worried about cheating, you know, but, like, not so much that the counter-cheating measures would make it impossible to even do anything. Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with ProPublica's Dara Lind and Vox's Umer Irfan. Uh, We wanted to talk today about, for one thing, it's good to be back, back on The Weeds. Uh, In the interim, while we've been on break, uh, vaccines have been approved and people have started to get vaccinated for COVID-19, which is great. And yet, if you had been reading stories in December when they were talking about 20 million people uh, might be vaccinated by the end of the year, that has not come to fruition, um, not even close. And we've even seen not just what I think was anticipated was, you know, it takes a while to make these things, they have to be distributed, etc. But a number of states seem to be having trouble just like using the doses of vaccine that have been given to them. Um, so Umer has been reporting on this a lot. And like, what what is going on? Like, what what happened to my 20 million shots? Well, they learned that it's a lot easier said than done. I mean, yes, as you <laughs> noted, I mean, the goal was to get 20 million by the end of December. And right now, I think we're close to about 5 million shots administered. So That's a lot like, less. it's about, yeah, about a quarter of where we want to actually be. And the manufacturers say that they've actually gotten pretty close to actually making those numbers. The issue is on the administration side, basically getting it to the hospitals and clinics that are administering it, and then from there actually getting it into patients' arms. And that's where the hiccups seem to be. Uh, You may recall that, you know, last month some states were reporting their allocations were cut, and then Pfizer, the manufacturer, was saying that there was a whole bunch of unclaimed doses at their warehouses, which indicates that there was some sort of mismanagement and miscommunication. And then on the front lines of this vaccine administration, what we're seeing is that basically uh, a lot of doctors and uh, hospitals are not really that well equipped to administer it. They're having shortages of personnel. They don't have the uh, facilities to actually store this. And, you know, Some of these vaccines have very uh, stringent storage requirements. 
And then also they're having a hard time sorting out who should actually get them. This is one of the other big hurdles. Like with influenza, for instance, you know, you can just go into a CVS and get the shot within five or 10 minutes. Here you have to actually fill out a questionnaire. You have to be put on a list. You have to actually see what your priorities are. And different states are setting different guidelines. Um, some of them are taking these uh, priority listings very seriously. Others are basically saying if you're over the age of 65, it's on a first come, first serve basis. And then you've had also scandals where you've had hospitals that were basically allocating doses for friends and family rather than people at high risk. So the fact that we have such a disparate uh, administration of this, that we have no central cohesive plan for rolling out these vaccines means that we have this sort of scattershot approach and that's just left a lot of vaccines unused. It seems that there are two different kinds of problems here, right? One is the kind of broad umbrella of are vaccines getting to the places where they could be administered? Are they being stored properly? The kind of physical infrastructure of, you know, how are how are these being distributed? And then there is this second question of who is, you know, even if you had everything set up so that a maximal number of people could be getting vaccines, who are those people? How do they know? And are those the people who are actually coming forward? And like, relatedly, are people who are you know, eligible, affirmatively refusing to take the vaccine, that therefore indicating that there are much bigger problems with kind of broad uptake than we would have anticipated. Umer, it sounds like you're kind of saying that we definitely, we can't tell how big the second problem is yet because the first problem is so big that we're just not to a point where we would be able to do broad distribution, even if we knew exactly who was supposed to get them first. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of energy invested into coming up with these sophisticated strategies for, you know, how to vaccinate, who should be prioritized, and, you know, the idea of whether we should be reducing fatalities or whether we should be reducing transmission. But all of that's kind of moot if you can't really get the vaccines to the places they need to go in the first place, and you're having hiccups in just the basic administration of this. Like, you've had vaccine doses that were thrown away because they weren't able to be used in time. You had, you know, in a couple clinics where people were actually, um, I think there was one case in Wisconsin where a nurse deliberately spoiled vaccines. So, I mean, the fact is that they haven't done enough to build trust. They haven't done enough to train people to administer this. And then just like the very basics of scale. I mean, we were talking about immunizing potentially millions of people over the next few months. A lot of facilities are not set up to do this. Like even influenza, which is recommended for everyone over the age of six months, we're not really doing millions of doses of that on a regular ongoing basis. You know, we, we, the throughput of that is much lower. Uh, Monsef Slawi, who is the head of Operation Warp Speed, said this is anywhere from three to four times as large as our effort to immunize against influenza every year. So while we have experience with rolling out vaccines on a regular basis, this is still on an unprecedented scale. And the the backdrop, right, is that the United States does not have a core of government public health people who like could be dispatched to do this. And I think a little bit contrary to the impression a very casual news consumer might have had, like Operation Warp Speed did not work on that, right? Like the the federal approach was to develop the vaccine, to get it approved, and then a logistical effort to deliver doses to hospitals, basically, right? To, To state public health officials. And then states, you know, who presumably for months were aware that at some point all this vaccine would be dumped on their doorstep. They didn't particularly do anything to like build capacity, right? There's no conscription of nurses to go work 18-hour shifts 
vaccinating everybody, right? So things are in the hands of hospitals, it seems like mostly, and they're doling out vaccines at a, I mean, I, I don't know, at a, at a somewhat leisurely pace, right? There's no, there's like nobody exactly in charge, right? Like, and there's no upside, right? So it, for very good reason, we are not just auctioning doses of the vaccine to the highest bidder. But if we were doing that, then you could make incredibly large sums of money by administering vaccines to people. And then you would have a strong incentive to like do it as fast as possible and like call people in to work overtime because you'd be selling the hottest commodity on the market. But like right now, there's no there's like no particular upside to you as a hospital administrator to get people vaccinated over Christmas. So if people want to have Christmas off, which like normal people do, it seems like they just kind of took the day off. I mean, it's useful to describe Operation Warp Speed not just as a, you know, kind of deregulatory effort, which I think is, you know, because the Trump administration was so vocal about trying to expedite approvals, you know, that's what took the the focus of attention. But there was an effort to actually, you know, set state allocations and get them there. And if you think logically about that being the point at which the process broke down, okay, yes, hospitals, in addition to everything you've addressed, Matt, like are currently, many hospitals in the United States are currently dealing with a worse, you know, corona, like are more overwhelmed by coronavirus cases than they have been before. It's not clear how Los Angeles County, which is absolutely, you know, underwater right now uh, on COVID cases, would be expected to kind of spin up this additional energy to come up with a good vaccine distribution plan. State governments, you know, yes, there wasn't the investment in, they weren't throwing money at cold storage chains to make sure that they would be able to store enough vaccine, but also state governments have been absolutely strapped for cash for the last six months. And we're asking the federal government not for specifically for help with vaccine storage, but for direct aid that was going to allow them to do anything. And the federal government was non-responsive to that. So it's not that surprising that a state government that feels very cash strapped and unable to do big things and hospitals that feel very personnel strapped and unable to kind of spin off more resources aren't, you know, weren't putting in the proactive energy on this. That doesn't necessarily mean that there isn't more that can be done. I mean, the folks who I've talked to who have actually gotten vaccinated have said, I would be more than happy to, you know, take some volunteer shifts and help, you know, they're, they're, the thing about many of the people who have been vaccinated so far being themselves healthcare professionals is that there is, you know, there is a pool of people there and you can definitely, you can imagine a world in which the kind of effort that was put into getting participants for vaccine trials was put into just making sure that people who signed up were captured. Um, But it's also not that surprising that in the absence of central planning, this has happened. And it's worth pointing out that this, you know, again, that this isn't just a matter of the Trump administration didn't think that central planning was the federal government's role. It just assumed that it could take it up to the state line and the the state government would take it from there. Right. And I mean, I think one thing I would add is that like our healthcare system is very atomized. We have 3000 counties across the country. And, and as you noted, they're also cash strapped as well. And so 
Uh, they have no money to really um, scale up a lot of this administration that, that you noted. And there were efforts at doing so earlier in the pandemic with the previous relief bills, but those were on the order of like hundreds of millions of dollars across the whole country. And we needed, you know, on the order of billions of dollars in terms of shoring up this kind of infrastructure. And that only recently started coming through and building that up now that you have some of the money allocated is still going to take time, which means, you know, they were, they were trying to do a lot with very little and, um, and we're seeing the results now. What kind of like training do you need to administer these vaccines? This is something that I've been a little sort of un- unsure about looking at this. Like, like who, what is it, what does it take to vaccinate somebody? I mean, in terms of the actual injection, I mean, the procedure is not super sophisticated. It's, um, you know, you, you sanitize the spot that you're injecting and then you, um, you know, use typical syringe and inject into the muscle. The bigger issue is going to be, you know, complying with all the healthcare regulations, things like HIPAA laws. Also, um, the intake requirements that we were talking about earlier, basically that, you know, you want to make sure you're administering the vaccine to the right people. And so, uh, there have been talk about, you know, building up a medical reserve corps or basically building some sort of cadre of, of volunteers who can administer these vaccines. You don't have to be, you know, a certified nurse or any other kind of healthcare professional, but you do need some degree of training in order to uh, properly adhere to sterile procedure and all the documentation that's necessary. Uh, but this is something that, you know, could potentially be knocked out in a weekend workshop. This is something that you could really um, train a group of people in. And as long as you have them supervised well, you could have a, you know, a group of people that can, you know, definitely help extend your reach as far as being able to vaccinate more people. It's just that that infrastructure in terms of just training those volunteers and getting that, those people out there is not there. In theory, it's easier to create that infrastructure than it is to, you know, distribute like cold storage lockers to a bunch of hospitals. And so far as it's easier to or quicker to recruit people than to manufacture things. Right. So is the is that really so much of the bottleneck that it would be sufficient or is that something that itself needs to be downstream of just the physical questions of do the hospitals that are receiving vaccines have the ability to store them? Well, it's, it's probably going to be a mix of both. I mean, um, as you noted, yes, some of these vaccines have very stringent cold storage requirements. Uh, the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, for instance, requires storage at minus 70 degrees Celsius, which is roughly dry ice temperatures. Now, they've developed this uh, container that they say they can store the vaccine in for up to 10 days. But that, you know, means that you are on a strict deadline for how quickly you can use those vaccines. I mean, the bigger challenge still is a little bit further upstream in terms of the administration, in terms of allocating where these vaccines are going in the first place. I mean, if if the manufacturer is saying we have unclaimed doses, I mean, then that that seems like that's to be a bigger problem than than getting people to administer it on the front lines. I mean, the, the fact is that we're not being able to get it from the factories to the storage facilities to the hospitals. If we're having hiccups that far upstream, then then those seem to be the the bigger challenges than the, the higher priorities at the moment. So, I think the prioritization question is interesting because that I I don't know anything about. Like vaccine logistics is really hard, but prioritization debates is sort of like fun and easy for anybody who understands statistics and math a little bit to to weigh in on. And I felt like when this was originally being conceived, it was like the shared premise of everybody, right? Whether they wanted to try to prioritize the most vulnerable or prioritize those most likely to spread was that there would be incredible scarcity of doses, right? And like, just like, robust demand. And so we were really saying like, well, who's going to be allowed to get this? But it looks like in the actual administering that there's been 
at least like two roadblocks, right? Like one is some people, uh, particularly nursing home aides, who everybody agrees should qualify to get the shot, maybe don't want it. And then also that trying to sort of like do the compliance checklist is making it difficult for hospitals to administer the shots, right? So we had Andrew Cuomo threatening very tough legal action against people who uh, dose the wrong people with, with vaccines, which sort of makes sense, right? I mean, you don't want to see supplies diverted to like the development director of the hospital rather than a frontline worker. At the same time, if you make every shot take 20 minutes longer than it otherwise might, because you're doing a lot of paperwork and sort of rechecking, like the, the cost to that can also be really high, right? I mean, and so this, I, I mean, it's really confounded my expectation, but but it seems like it seems like we maybe were thinking about the prioritization question the, the wrong way around, right? And that we we need to think about what sort of speeds the process along more than who gets what exactly, because because like the worst thing is for the this stuff that has to be kept very cold to end up in the trash bin. Right. I mean I do think that, Matt, you're selling yourself a little short because I think you were actually, you know, the first person who I saw during the prioritization debates making it clear that, like, we should be so lucky to have demand outstrip supply for these. Let's make sure that the supply is on lock and then we can figure, you know, and and that the demand is high enough and then we can figure out how to match those two. I was worried about cheating, you know, but like not so much that the counter cheating measures would make it impossible to even do anything. And and I do think that it's really that the the uh, the kind of Cuomo like punish hospitals strategy, especially because one of the punishments being proposed is that they stop receiving doses of the vaccine. And it's very hard for me to understand from an equity standpoint how if you have a hospital that should be giving vaccines to group X and is instead giving vaccines to group Y, uh, withholding vaccines from them entirely doesn't further disadvantage group X and. Honestly, when you put it this way, it's not something that should have been that surprising to anybody. But the extent to which failures of very clear, simple communication about when you should get the vaccine, you know, when you should start like calling your hospital and asking if they have the vaccine, when you will be allowed to get the vaccine if you want it. uh, It's it is not surprising that that has created massive problems, given how much we've seen the absence or presence of clear communication about basics of public health having been, you know, an impo- a rolling theme of this pandemic. But, you know, I think that, that there are so many downstream consequences of that. It's not just the uh, workers who everyone agrees who sh- should be getting vaccinated who are actively refusing, but also the folks who are nominally in groups that would allow, you know, like in, in a classification that would allow them to get vaccinated now, but because they're not frontline healthcare workers dealing with COVID patients don't feel that it's their turn, don't feel that they deserve it, want to make sure that it goes to the neediest people first. There are, you know, obviously cases in which people may not be aware whether they, you know, what category they fall into because there's no effort at proactive communication. That's kind of bracketing the whole question of what are the effects of seeing stories about healthcare workers not wanting the vaccine and, you know, to what extent is that a 
problem for the rest of the for the rest of the system, which I actually think is probably worth getting into a little bit on its own. But this is fairly easy to fix, right? It wouldn't it's not that hard to come up with, you know, even if that's not going to match, even if it's going to outstrip the number of actual doses available to be injected into arms, it's not, it wouldn't be that difficult to imagine a campaign that was like, if you fit one of these criteria, you should call your hospital and you'll be put on the vaccine waiting list, you know, and you'll be the first ones to get served. Like there are easy ways to work around this. Uh, but again, Matt, it, as you were saying, that, that would have required thinking less about, you know, we assume everyone's going to be lined up outside the door. Who do we let in first? And more about how do we make sure there is a line so that nothing is expiring on the shelf. Yeah, I think one instructive example here might be looking at the country of Israel, which has one of the highest rates of vaccination in terms of per capita vaccination rates of their population in the world right now. And they do have, you know, a priority list, but they're not very precious about it. In fact, you know, there, there have been a lot of reports where like near the end of the day, nurses will walk out of the hospital and look at anybody on the street and offer them the vaccine, like literally pizza delivery drivers, because they're like, we have vaccine doses that are about to expire. Uh, would you like to come in and get a shot? Here's your slip. Come back in four weeks to get your follow up. Um, and, you know, by prioritizing aggressively to getting shots into people's arms, you know, they get their vaccination rate up, even though these are not necessarily the highest priority people. You know, you are going to have 20 year olds and 30 year olds who are relatively healthy that are vaccinated, but it's not necessarily at the expense of somebody at higher risk. It's basically relative to a vaccine being wasted or unused. And so when you frame it that way, I think, um, and, and you start not being as precious about prioritizing the highest risk people, you know, you can actually get to a higher vaccination rate. And that might be a strategy worth considering. But, you know, I to me, what's most striking about the Israeli case is not even the the prioritization stuff, but that, you know, they thought in advance, as they, you always do in Israel, you say, well, what's going to happen on Shabbat? Right. And they called in some of the Orthodox authorities and they had them sprinkle the magic dust where I, I, I forget what the Hebrew word is. I'm Jewish, by the way. I'm not I'm not making light. Um, but there's like a proviso that like you can do work that is life saving activity on the Sabbath. That, that that is considered okay. Uh, but you need like a ruling from some authorities that like, no, this counts. Um, and so they they got that ruling so that everybody knows, like, yes, like keep coming to work on Saturdays, on, on Fridays after sundown, keep doing the vaccinations. And you know, that's a big deal. There's always questions in, in Israel about what you should and should be allowed to do on, on Saturdays. And and they made a sort of clear statement about that. Whereas uh, the United States has had a much more um, kind of relaxed approach, I think, to actually doing the work of vaccine administration. Israel just attacked this problem with a greater degree of urgency uh, than a lot of American sort of states really did. Um, and some of that has to do with the money, you know, and other things, because you, people, you can't just conjure up staff out of nowhere. Um, I, I think, let, let's take a break now, though. And I, I want to ask Umer about a couple other vaccine things. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. 
Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. So I've just been a little mildly curious about this, but like what's up with this other vaccine that they have approved in the UK, but that American regulators seem not to like? This is the uh, AstraZeneca University of Oxford vaccine. Um, like the uh, Moderna vaccine and the uh, Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine that have been approved under emergency use in the U.S., these are all using completely new technologies. But the uh, AstraZeneca vaccine uses a different new technology. The Moderna and Pfizer vaccines both use messenger RNA as their platform, which is a strand of genetic material that is inserted into the body, and then the body starts manufacturing components of the virus. But the AstraZeneca-Oxford University vaccine, this uses an adenovirus as a vector. So basically what they do is they take another virus, they reprogram it so that it actually uh, inserts the information for making a part of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, the virus that causes COVID-19. And the advantage of this strategy is that because this packaging, this adenovirus packaging exists in nature, it's shelf stable. It tends to do really well at, um, you know, just refrigerator temperatures. You don't have to keep it at these ultra cold temperatures. And because it's using a naturally occurring virus to package it, you know, it, you can also reduce some of the manufacturing costs. And so this vaccine has a much uh, better cost advantage. It's about 3 to $4 per dose, whereas the mRNA vaccines are between 15 to $25 per dose, which, you know, if you scale that up for millions, if not billions of doses, you know, this is a huge financial margin. And so this is the vaccine that a lot of 
um, developing countries and aid groups are really leaning on. This is the one that they're talking about um, as their priority for distribution because it's the one that has the fewest constraints and at the lowest cost. Part of the reason that it was approved in the United Kingdom is that the UK, their regulatory body, does approvals differently than the Food and Drug Administration in the US. They do things on a rolling basis. And they uh, pulled from two different clinical trials. There was a clinical trial in the United Kingdom and one in Brazil that they drew information from. But these trials had some issues with them. I mean, in one of them, they actually had a dosing mistake where they basically gave a much smaller first dose than they were initially anticipating. And for some reason, that actually led to a much stronger efficacy than uh, with the uh, proper dosing regimen. And they also used two different kinds of placebo controls. Um, and so for, for those reasons, the FDA was a little bit uh, sketchy about using that information to grant an approval. And in the United States, there's also another independent phase three trial that's going on right now. And uh, officials in the U.S. say that they will use that as their basis for approval. The results from that probably will not shake out for a few more weeks, maybe it might be a couple months. And so that's why the U.S. is uh, being a little bit more hesitant with this vaccine, but the U.K. is charging ahead. So what is the the concern about the bad data, that the vaccine might be unsafe or that it might not work? Like what's what 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 risk should we understand the UK to be taking by sort of giving the green light to this based on flawed data? I mean, it's generally hard to tell how efficacious is it. I mean, that's what the main endpoint of these early clinical trials is, right? These trials are designed to answer several questions, but the first one is how well does this work, right? That's the first endpoint, the first data point. And we got very strong signals with the uh, Moderna vaccine and the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, roughly in the 95% efficacy range against preventing COVID-19 disease. Uh, but they got mixed results uh, with this AstraZeneca-Oxford vaccine, because in one of the trials, it was roughly around 65%. In another trial, it was around 90%. And they averaged it out to about 70% efficacy. So we're not quite sure exactly how that shakes out. And if that's the main endpoint that you want to consider, especially when you're doing the cost-benefit analysis of how well does this work versus what risk are you taking, you know that, that becomes a little bit harder to make when the benefit overall benefit is not as clear and it seems to be a little bit lower. So um, that, that's, that's the main risk. But beyond that, I mean, it's a little bit more difficult to tell. I mean, like in terms of reactogenicity or in terms of uh, you know, people having adverse reactions, you tend to see those pretty early after somebody's vaccinated and you haven't really seen huge complications with this vaccine or with any of the vaccines we've um, authorized so far. I mean, the main one is allergic reactions and a few people who have a history of anaphylaxis and maybe I think at least one person who didn't have had severe allergic reactions. But there are a very, very tiny minority of cases. And so in terms of like reactions right away, that tends to be a pretty low risk. The other risk that you're kind of trying to mitigate is long-term risk, basically what happens over the course of months and years. And that's something that you can only see by waiting and seeing. Essentially, you just have to wait that duration of time to see if there's any complications and also see how durable that immunity is. But in terms of the overall risk, as you noted, yeah, it's not it's not that high. I actually want to talk a little bit about the the whole side effects question because it gets into, you know, the the big hard difficulty at the heart of this, which is just even if every lever that can be pulled by government gets pulled, is public trust going to be high enough to have high uptake? And Umer, I'm wondering how you think about this as a science reporter, because I personally, and thinking back to the the white paper we looked at a few weeks ago, Matt, on media coverage of COVID-19, I have been surprised at the 
number of stories I've seen that are anecdotal reports of, you know, oh, this one person had side effects. I understand, like, as, as a reporter, I understand that that's a very difficult thing to, you know, to restrain yourself from doing because you don't want to be suppressing news. And it does seem that this is, you know, it, because it is unusual, it is to a certain degree newsworthy. But like, how do you as a science reporter balance the need to not kind of arm people who might be arguing that the vaccine is more dangerous than it in fact is versus the desire to not hide the truth from people by not letting them know when there are side effect cases? I mean, that's that's a great question. And it's a hard needle to thread. But uh, what one um, um, epidemiologist told me is like, treat people like adults. You know, you, you talk to your readers and try to parse the risk as well as you can for them. You don't want to hide them. You don't want to mislead people about potential problems, but you also don't want to overstate them. There are risks with every vaccine. You know, these, is, this is a medical intervention. This is a pharmaceutical. This is a drug that you're injecting into your body, and th- there are people that will react adversely to it. This is a known issue with vaccines. In the United States, we have the Vaccine Injury Compensation Fund. Basically, we know that if we administer vaccines to as many people as possible, we're going to have a certain rate of complications, and we want to make sure that we compensate the people that are, you know, um, harmed by that is part of our public health strategy, right? That, that's factored into it. We want to get those complications as low as possible, but we know that they're not zero. Um, and that's true of these vaccines as well. Now, because they're using a new technology, there are, you know, potentials for risks that we have not anticipated. And it seems like early on, we're seeing that these vaccines are a little bit more what scientists call reactogenic. Basically, they provoke a slightly stronger um, response right away. People have a bit more of a sore arm or a headache or a fever. And some doctors are saying, like, you know, if you're going to get this vaccine, schedule the day off work. So you want to let people know what to expect because you don't want them to be surprised by what happens. And you also, because these are two-dose vaccines, you want to make sure they come back. And so if somebody has a reaction, you want them to understand that, you know, this is normal. This is within the normal parameters, and you should still come back and get the follow-up. And whatever reaction you're experiencing is still far better than getting this disease itself. Um, and then also for the more severe complications, like these severe allergic reactions, we've seen a, a couple, few different reports about, you know, um, health officials are saying that if you have a history of severe allergies, then you should probably avoid these vaccines. And that's probably the best course of action at the moment. But, you know, I, I kind of think on a media level that the headlining of some of these stories about the severe side effects has been really irresponsible. I mean, I, I think if you're a journalist, you have to ask yourself, right? Like, if you heard a story that was like somebody's toaster didn't work and they got burned, like, would you write an article about that? Like, this one toaster didn't work, right? Now, you might investigate, right? Like, does this brand of toasters have some kind of catastrophically high error rate? Like, did the Consumer Product Safety Commission, like, forget to evaluate the toaster? But, like, shit happens, right? Like, I, I, now, if you want to do a story about severe side effects, because people are curious, right? So you you write up on Monday, it's like, how many people have severe side effects? And it turns out to be one in a million, which turns out to be four people, like, because we've given four million doses, like, okay, fine, like, that's a true, accurate story. But if you're, you know, it's like what you put in the headline is, is news, right? And, you know, lots of people have over the years criticized, like, it bleeds, it leads as a local news mantra, uh, because there's millions of people in the metro area. And the fact that one of them maybe got murdered is not necessarily tell you 
like what's happening in your society today, right? Whereas like a statistical story, like murders are up 40% year on year, like that that's a story, you know, and people people should be surprised. And I have been taken aback. I mean, given how, I think like a lot of media people have been very invested in like doing responsible public health over the course of this pandemic in a way that's that's good and desirable. But then like the wire services like really kind of went wild on the first couple of weeks of just reporting. I mean, there's hundreds of millions of people in the United States, like bad things are happening to somebody every kind of day. Um, people have allergic reactions to clementines. Like, I, I don't know, like you, you need to, if you're not giving people perspective, like you're really not advancing knowledge. Yes. I definitely think that this is yet more evidence that so much of the conversation about like media coverage purports to be about the text of the way articles are written, but are in fact about the way, you know, the kind of headlines metadata of an article, including the headline, including whether it's push notified. I, uh, my partner got a push notification from a news organization that sends out a lot of that 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 has a, a very broad audience for its push notifications about a, a pair of adverse reactions to the vaccine. And by deeming that push notification worthy, you're sending another signal about how important this data point is. Um, but, you know, I also think that to a certain extent, this is this is the kind of drunk under a streetlight problem, right? Like you're looking for the keys under the streetlight, not because you think you dropped them under the streetlight, but because that's where there's light. Um, I think a lot of the concern about media coverage of this, as legitimate as it is, and obviously like I brought it up, um, is a way to direct the concern that there's going to be low trust in this vaccine to something that can be discussed and controlled, right? Like, like to because there are people who are amenable to media criticism, there's a certain extent to like work the refs in the right direction um, rather than deal with the fact that the apparent fact that there may in fact be a lot of people who are distrustful of the vaccine and also distrustful of those media outlets. And, you know, Umer, you mentioned the sabotage case in Wisconsin. There's also a case in Colorado of, you know, a healthcare professional refusing to, uh, like, deliberately spoiling a bunch of vaccines, although not then injecting them. Uh, and, you know, between that and the anecdata of low uptake among eligible workers that appears to be driven by they just don't want to do it, how much of a sense do we have right now of how big a problem is people just don't trust this thing? And how do you deal with that? I mean, it's hard to say. If you look at the uh, polling, um, you know, earlier on in the pandemic and now, you see that, you know, people are more interested in taking a vaccine now than they were maybe three or four months ago. And so so the confidence in a vaccine has kind of gone up. Um, and, and I think that the Food and Drug Administration, for some of its earlier missteps, Earlier in the pandemic, when they approved questionable drugs, uh, they've been they've been sticklers for sticking to uh, you know their guidelines now for these vaccines. Almost, I think somebody some would argue to a fault, um, and and that's what they say is going to help them boost confidence. That basically that they're not going to yield on what their parameters for safety and efficacy actually are. Um, but that's, I mean, going to be, you know, still an ongoing challenge. I mean, as, as you noted, you know, as complications arise, as, as more people take these vaccines, there's going to be also a plethora of anecdote of people having, you know, maybe some of the mild side effects, some of the more severe side effects, or, or some people just, you know, spreading more misinformation. That's, that's going to be an ongoing process. 
Um, and the thing to remember about like, you know, transmitting this information is it is practical as well, because right now these vaccines are being authorized under emergency use, which means that they're authorized. Uh, basically, you have to make that cost benefit analysis that the, the benefits outweigh the risks. And so say, for example, pregnant women. Uh, pregnant women were deliberately excluded from clinical trials, right? You don't want to run medical experiments on, you know, pregnant women. You don't want to run medical experiments on children. You don't want to run medical experiments on people who are immunocompromised. But these are all people, groups that could actually benefit from a vaccine. And so now they have that discretion. So if you are a pregnant woman and you have the option of getting a vaccine that's never been tested on pregnant women, like what data do you draw on? Right, you need to have some sort of reference point for what what the complication rates are, what the risk factors are, because ultimately you are going to have to make a decision one way or another. Eventually, you know, there's still talk about whether or not we should be vaccinating children or at least you know teenagers, uh, because they're the ones that are that could potentially be spreading the disease. I mean, like, what information do we have on that? It's very limited, but you know, and because they were largely excluded from trials, we don't have good data. But eventually, they will have to you know extrapolate from what's out there, and so. Yes, I mean, I understand this. There's this impulse to have this pro-social reporting, um, you know, aesthetic or this um, idea that, you know, you want to encourage people to do the right thing through your reporting and things that benefit society. But um, at the same time, also, like, it, it is also very important to be, you know, as clear-headed and clear-eyed about what that risks actually are because they do have practical benefits as well. Sometime when Joe Biden has blessed us with, like, a slow news month, I think like the actually the whole question of clinical trials for pregnant women is a fascinating policy issue, because as you're saying, it's like there's so many good reasons to not run them. But then the list of medications for which it's like, can you take this if you're pregnant is like question mark, question mark is so incredibly long. And, you know, it includes like vaccines, like all kinds of antidepressants, you know, things that, that really help people. And it's it's a it's a kind of like dark zone of, of public policy because nobody nobody like wants to open up the doors to like dodgy seeming experiments and also nobody wants to 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 kind of go first on this stuff you know i will say with with the reluctance reports like i'd read some of these things where they were like oh we've got 40 percent of healthcare workers who don't want to take it i spoke to somebody a friend of mine who is a psychologist and she had been offered the vaccine and she declined it and I think in a superficial read of the data, people would be like, aha, a healthcare worker who doesn't want the vaccine. But she had thought that like everybody was clamoring to get this thing and that she's really just seeing patients on Zoom and didn't really deserve it. So she didn't want to take somebody else's spot. Then when she read in the newspaper the following day, that like actually only half of the available doses were being given to everybody. She just like came back around and was like, yeah, just give it to me, you know, later. Right. But so that was like, she was trying to step aside. I also heard somebody who works for a labor union that represents a lot of nursing home aides on the West coast that, you know, a lot of his members have already had COVID. And so they were saying that they, I mean, I, I think it's unclear if it's, well, they didn't want to run the risk of the vaccine or they just didn't want to soak up the supply. But one way or another, it was like the conventional wisdom among the staff at this facility was that like a huge epidemic had blown through. They'd all had it. A lot of their uh, people in their care had passed away. Many had not. The staff, you know, had largely covered, but like one way or the other, like what was the point of doing a huge vaccination drive there, which didn't, I mean, that didn't strike me as a crazy 
line of thought. I mean, I know there are questions about how long acquired immunity lasts, et cetera, et cetera. But like probabilistically, right? I mean, uh, especially in the absence of clear affirmative communication from the government that even if you've had this, you should be lining up to get the vaccine. Right. I mean, I don't know. That, yeah. that just seemed like a, you know, not an obvious case to me. Like, right. Why shouldn't they pass the hat to somebody else? So I think that that, you know, I, I definitely the extent to which this is genuine reticence versus the kind of, um, you know, you go first through the door, you know, courtesy routine uh, <laughs> that can be pretty easily sorted out is that'll probably become much clearer in the next couple of days or weeks. But I do think that it's worth paying serious attention to the few cases that we do know of, of healthcare professionals affirmatively refusing or, or worse meddling with the vaccine. Because for one thing, like, Obviously, if someone is tampering with a vaccine before injecting it uh, to make it less effective, that is going to have massive effects, both for the people who are who are now at risk of getting infected, even though they think they've been vaccinated. That will then have effects uh, of making people think that the vaccine isn't worth it and lower uptake. And it also just complicates the question of how much can we really be talking about the media as the relevant pro-social entity? Right. Because if you think about that. The assumption there is that we are in the business of informing potential consumers of the vaccine, not potential administrators of it. They are assumed to be professionals who are like all, you know, lined up and doing the pro-social thing and in line with what best practices in their industry tell them. And if that is not the case, if there are, in fact, you know, healthcare being a massive industry in the United States and there being a lot of people on the front lines who ha have gotten into that profession for reasons other than they have the same belief in capital S science and the validity of clinical trials and all of that, that people who are making decisions at the CDC do, then we have a bigger problem. And it's not, I mean, obviously it's a, it's a COVID vaccine problem, but it's also just public trust, not just in expertise, but like in the person who's administering the vaccine to you. And I just, it's very difficult to weigh the kind of how serious is this versus how much of an outlier is it? But that I think is something that needs to be grappled with is very different from just people not wanting to take it themselves for whatever reason. Let's, let's take another break and come back with our white paper. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Okay, I'm about to butcher some Scandinavian names, everybody. 
Our favorite. Yep. Uh, This week's white paper is The Unequal Distribution of Opportunity, a National Audit Study of Bureaucratic Discrimination in Primary School Access. It's written by, and apologies to the Danes whose names I'm about to mispronounce, Osmuth Leth Olson and Jonas Hull Keith Anderson, as well as Donald Moynihan from uh, Georgetown. And the study uses primary schools in Denmark as a way to look at, I mean, we are familiar with, you know, we've talked about this a bunch on the weeds, both as white papers and kind of in in intersecting policy debates about the use of audit studies to measure discrimination, right? Like if you put a black name on top of a resume versus a white name, what does that do to job offers and that kind of thing? In the context of government, there's been research on that, uh, especially in the United States, but it's largely been through the mechanism of I am pretending to be a constituent of yours and I want some information on how I can vote or how I can attend, you know, how I can enroll in public schools. And so what you're measuring there is how likely is the, you know, politician's office or the bureaucracy to respond to that request for information. What they're doing in this study is instead uh, using the way that the Danish public school system works to email and ask, do you have space for my third grader? We would like to change schools. And what they find in that is that the number of emails where it is coming from a stereotypically Muslim name of the parent who is who is making this request are much more likely to receive a response of, no, sorry, we don't have any room for your kid, uh, and slightly less likely to, to receive a kind of clear, yes, you know, please come in, but much more likely to get that clear rejection than parents with stereotypically Danish names. This is, it's useful because it's not, you know, the kind of request for information school of audit study is measuring something that isn't at the core of what the bureaucracy does, right? Yes, it's an important function of constituent relations for a congressional office to be willing to tell somebody, regardless of what party it looks like they might vote for, here is how you can vote. But when you're looking at something like this, where it is an actual decision with a cost, that raises much more serious concerns about who are the people who you're rejecting out of hand, who are the people who you're kind of allowing to continue to go through the process, and how easy are you making it for them? Are you asking when you, they did find that the, in the Muslim name case, they were much more likely to get kind of these simple follow-up questions about like, tell me where your child is now, how, you know, how old are they, what's their name, that weren't obviously an any way the same as a straight up rejection, but that might raise the cost of continuing to comply and might make it, you know, might create a chilling effect in willingness to take advantage of these government services to which everybody is ostensibly equally entitled. And, you know, it's an interesting window into um, Nordic governance, I think, which is that, you know, if you if you think sort of in terms of broad stereotypes, right, the Nordic countries have a larger uh, public sector. It's also generally, you know, perceived by people to be more effective uh, than the American one. Uh, if you've if you've been to those countries and tried to investigate this, you will see that part of it is that it is a less bureaucratic um, kind of system, which is not. I'm currently in in Maine for a few weeks, and similarly, if you interact with town officials here, it's like it's small towny. And like they're more helpful, they're more proactive uh, than city officials in D.C. And it's easy to see uh, this relates to vaccine administration as well, that, you know, a more flexible and empowered civil service 
can be much more helpful and much more effective than an incredibly rule-bound and bureaucratic one. But it can also wield that power in a highly discriminatory manner, right? In the United States, I think that this wouldn't happen because if you wanted to reassign your kid to a different school in a large urban public school district, there would not be anybody who you could email at all. Right. Like there's a big central office. There's a really annoying process, but it's equally annoying for everybody to go through the My School DC lottery. Right. It's completely depersonalized and somewhat annoying. But like that's the point of like strict bureaucratic rules is to be fair rather than to be uh, sort of ringing up a random principal. And he's like, I don't really know if I want this kid in my school. I'm going to kind of brush him off, whereas I'll be helpful if he seems like a a nice blonde haired uh, little Hans or something there. And, you know, and I think that that's a real trade off we face in, in the public sector, that when you give people more degrees of freedom to sort of use their best judgment, um, they can probably do a better job, but they also get to define like what they think the better job is. A lot of overt racism in Danish public life is really, really high, I should also say, like much less stigmatized than in the United States. And, you know, so I think not surprising that people will sort of use their discretion in in abusive ways that are really going to be harmful to, I mean, harmful to the people affected, but also harmful to the sort of nominal goals of integration and social cohesion that Danish politicians tell themselves they're trying to advance. So, I mean, I definitely think that this is, it is true that greater degrees of discretion make it easier for that discretion to be used in a discriminatory manner. But I do think that your account kind of understates the extent to which in a process that is difficult for everybody, differential compliance costs matter so much more, right? In If it's difficult for anybody to navigate the system, then how welcoming is the person who is trying to help you navigate it? And this is where, you know, the requests for information that have been the focus of other studies do become very important, you know, not just as signals of do we, the government, like you, but as you know, we are going to lower the amount of effort that it requires for you to get this thing that you're entitled to. And so, you know, looking at that and figure, you know, who is being asked to provide more information, who is being treated with a degree of initial skepticism, who is being told that they should or shouldn't be eligible for things, you know, and there's obviously a large extent to which, uh, immigration policy has a you know has has a lot of this kind of like bureaucratic step fall off chilling effect issues and in you know to to cite something that was fairly well covered during the Trump administration there appears to have been a drop off in public benefits use among immigrant families after the proposal of a regulation that would make it harder for people to get green cards if they'd used benefits in the past the overlap of those two was very minimal, right? The the benefits that people weren't disenrolling from things that would actually disqualify them in the future off. Usually they weren't eligible for them at all. But because you're dealing with a population that has to do other things with its life other than figure out exactly which government benefits they are eligible for, the lack of clear proactive communication or feeling like the government was going to be on their side did you know does a lot of the work there. So I do think it's worth 
think, I mean, I, I think that ultimately, I'm not sure that the Nordic model of you assume the government's going to be, make it easy for you and they just have the ability to make it harder for some people is going to be that much more discriminatory than a system in which it's difficult for everyone and some people get the benefit of the doubt in making it a little bit easier or getting some help. Mayor, thoughts? Well, I mean, one thing looking at this paper that I just thought was kind of interesting is that they tried to quantify tone and just how friendly people were via email, which I thought was just kind of interesting because that was just not a metric that I would have ever thought to consider when it talks about allocating public services. But, you know, they, they note in their paper that, you know, this is something that's, you know, significant. It's kind of hard to quantify, but it is a it, it does end up being a barrier when you're treated with initial hostility or with, you know, this cold, formal uh, bureaucratic speak versus, you know, hello, hi, and being addressed by your name. Um, and so, I mean, looking at the results here, it doesn't look like there was that big of a difference between the uh, Muslim name group and the, the people with more stereotypically Danish names. But, um, you know, they it, 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 the fact that they chose to highlight this, I thought was just kind of significant that, or just interesting that this is a, one of the variables that might be worth looking into a little bit further, something that has a little bit less of a, a direct or tangible impact, but something that could, in, on balance or in aggregate, actually have uh, more significant implications. Yeah. And I will say just because that's exactly the kind of thing where like I look at that in a paper and go, how on earth did you measure this in a way you can be sure you weren't just reflecting what you wanted to see? And like methodologically, the paper's authors make it clear that they that they removed all identifying information from the responses so that it wasn't clear what name schools thought they were responding to before sending them to the people who were responsible for for coding, you know, the interactions is formal versus informal versus, you know, versus unfriendly. Um, and that there was a very, very high degree of correspondence between what like coder A gave an interaction and what coder B gave it, which is very suggestive that to the extent that they are seeing differences, um, the most obvious one being the difference in, you know, much more likely to be asked simple questions. There was a little a slight difference in Danish names are given a little more of an informal greeting versus the formal like dear so-and-so. And, you know, to the extent that those differences are present in the final paper, it does appear that that is not the result of people trying to read into read discrimination into neutral exchanges because they weren't necessarily aware which of those were supposed to be discriminatory. So this is this is a broader thought, but you know, there's been a lot of uh, talk this year about racial justice and things like that. And I keep thinking that an underrated idea would be to actually put money and resources into the civil rights division of the Justice Department running a lot more audit Sting. So it's not just being done by random academics, but going up on NBER. This is a pretty well-developed technology at this point. Uh, there are people who understand like how to run these studies, how persuasive they are. Um, but it's like a couple Danish academics with one uh, Irish-born living in America, public administration scholar at Georgetown doing like a random sting on Danish public schools. It doesn't necessarily achieve anything in the way that doing this same kind of research, but like from a regulatory and can sue you kind of institution in an organized way would. And in some ways it's like shallow almost compared to some of the big topics that have been under discussion this year, but also seems much more um, like actually doable. Like you could write a line item into an appropriations bill bulking up 
the team and, you know, you could hire a few people and you could maybe leverage some lawsuits, maybe just embarrass some people and some institutions. But it just it seems like a, a potentially promising way to drive real change in what's going on and expose very serious problems. Um, so I don't know. Put that out there for House members. I mean, I think for that to be worthwhile, though, you would have to have more uniformity and clarity among uh, federal court jurisdictions over when statistical evidence of disparate impact is sufficient in demonstrating discrimination, because there are various methodological ways that you can try to identify the mechanism by which discrimination is happening in an audit study. But at the end of the day, your evidence is still, you know, broad evidence of disparate impact, which not every court in the U.S., many, many courts, in fact, uh, do not consider sufficient to demonstrate that a, that a population is being treated unfairly. Well, statistical evidence of discrimination is different from statistical evidence of disparate impact. Yes, but... I mean, this kind of gets into, I think, a broader discussion of how social science expertise is treated in in the context of the judiciary, yes. because you that. can't actually like an audit study is not direct evidence of discrimination. It is a plausible hypothesis of discrimination based on direct evidence of disparate impact. Um, that's definitely you know, a concern. And the other problem with discounting, you know, ev- statistical evidence of disparate impact as a very suggestive piece of evidence for discrimination is that, you know, one of the mechanisms that's discussed in this paper is the idea of statistical discrimination, which isn't just like discrimination that's revealed through statistics, but discriminating against an individual because of your assumptions about what their group is more or less likely to do in the future. One of the things that they did here uh, was include in some of these letters to school districts a line about, you know, my my child's teachers say that he works very hard, uh, but we're still not happy with our school to see if there was a difference in, you know, whether Muslim students were more likely to get offered places if there was that evidence that they like weren't going to be dragging down anyone's school performance. And it didn't turn out that that was a substantial factor, but it's definitely something that you want to be sure is, you know, you, you want to be sure to figure out whether discrimination is being based on some kind of quote unquote rational, you know, well, people in X group are more likely to be Y. So we're not, so we'd better not assume that this person is going to be the exception uh, versus what they call taste-based discrimination, which is the kind of capital R racism that, you know, everybody is able to agree is racism, which is just rooted in fundamental animus uh, and therefore harder in theory, harder to change by showing you know, counter evidence. Um, But in cases where the existing statistical evidence reveals existing inequalities, perpetuating those inequalities by relying on the evidence becomes a problem in and of itself. All right. I think that's a great place to stop. Uh, Thank you so much, Umair, for enlightening us uh, about many things. Um, Thanks also to our brand new producer, Eric Janikas, who uh, we're really excited to have on board. The Weeds is glad to be back for the new year, 2021. Um, Thanks as always to our sponsors. uh, And we'll be back on Friday. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. 
Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.